Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we will be discussing the history of neonatology and a career in neonatology. We are recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We have the honor of being joined today by Dr. Charles Rosenfeld, Professor Emeritus in the Division of Neonatal Perinatal Medicine here at UT Southwestern. After graduating from Emory University in the 1960s, Dr. Rosenfeld completed residency, including a chief residency, at Yale and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He completed a fellowship in pediatric pulmonary medicine and a research program in perinatology. He joined UT Southwestern as faculty in 1973, and we're lucky to have had him stay here since then. He was the director of the Division of Neonatal Perinatal Medicine for 28 years and the division's fellowship director for 29 years. His impact on the field of neonatology is indisputable, with countless publications to his name, almost continuous NIH grant funding for his study of cardiovascular changes in pregnancy and fetal development, and a long list of mentees who have themselves gone on to become leaders in the field. He remains active in the division, including in research activities and journal club, and continues to provide mentorship and guidance to those of us in the division. Dr. Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a beautiful introduction. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're so glad to be able to learn from you today. When, Just from your perspective, when you were training in medical school in residency, what made you interested in um, you know, newborn babies, neonatology? Well, actually, um, I started off my training in pediatrics with a direct interest in pediatric neurology. Um, and had moved to New Haven and then to New York in order to accomplish that goal. But uh, like many trips that people take, uh, I found a detour in the road, um, and I ran into a, uh, a fellow in New Haven uh, by the name of Lou Gluck, who was the uh, uh, biochemist and pediatrician who was responsible for neonatal care at Yale New Haven Medical Center, uh, and Dr. Gluck uh, invented the LS ratio and, and taught us about phospholipids and surfactant, and I was fascinated by that. Moreover, um, I was one of the house staffs that opened up a brand-new neonatal intensive care unit at that time, and we went from an archaic unit to a brand-new one. Uh, I then moved to New York where I was introduced to Larry Gartner, who was an expert in uh, neonatal bilirubin metabolism uh, and was fascinated by the work that Dr. Gartner was doing in terms of bilirubin brain uh, damage uh, and how you treated it. Um, And I think it was the introduction to these two individuals uh, who waylaid my plans uh, and had me move on to the fact that uh, neonatal care was new, it was unique, it was early in its formative years, um, and there was a lot to learn about how to make a diagnosis in a newborn and how to care for these preterm infants. And so it was an exciting period in uh, neonatal medicine and in pediatrics in general. What was the general concept of neonatal care at that point? 
Well, it, it was interesting because at Yale New Haven, uh, they had just built uh, the uh, country's largest neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, it was huge. Uh, it was poorly designed, unfortunately, uh, as I learned later, but I thought it was pretty exciting at the time. And the concept was was that uh, there were preterm babies and term babies who got sick um, and needed care. Um, and these old uh, formula rooms, which had been converted to neonatal intensive care units, were where they were going to be cared for. Um, and basically, we were talking about babies that were greater than 1,200 uh, to 1,500 grams. There were very few kids, uh, newborn infants, that were less than 1,000 grams at that time. And we were using archaic equipment. In, in other words, the equipment that we had was really converted from adult care to neonatal care uh, and led to a lot of morbidity. So it was archaic medicine, uh, but it was new, it was exciting, and it was going to change. Sounds like there was a lot of room for growth and innovation. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was fortunate enough to be around people that were involved in, in meeting those needs. Uh, in New York City, uh, between Mount Sinai and Columbia and Einstein uh, and NYU. Uh, I, I met all of those folks at uh, meetings that they had in the city on a regular basis. So at the time when you were starting um, in, in your field, from what you mentioned, Yale had just opened up this neonatal intensive care unit. Who were they admitting? I, you know, what was kind of their their... I guess, admission criteria at that time? Well, the admission criteria was anything that was preterm, um, and preterm basically meant less than 2,000 grams. Um, and so uh, babies who were less than 2,000 grams were admitted there. Babies of mothers with uh, diabetes uh, were thought to be at risk. Uh, um, and small, really small kids. I can remember one uh, infant that was admitted there that was uh, a thousand grams, and everybody was astonished by the fact that this kid never went on the ventilator, never got sick. Um, and uh, here we were in this uh, neonatal unit called the ICU, where the oxygen in the room was probably as high as the oxygen in the isolate because they all leaked. Um, and we were trying to figure out why this little baby was doing so well when the mom and dad showed up, and the mom was probably about 5'8 or 5'9, and the dad was probably 5 feet. Um, and we then realized that the baby really was reflective of the father's short statue, uh, and that the baby might be older hmm. than uh, uh, we had expected on the basis of birth weight. So gestational age wasn't a, uh, uh, a consideration at that point. Uh, so it was basically if you looked sick or you were small. Oh, I see. So the Ballard exam and things like that weren't in... Um, no, there was no Ballard exam at that point. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Advar score was around, and that helped to screen some babies. Wow. So really just kind of an open field then for you. And as a trainee, what kind of things do you think, what skills do you think were important for you to develop early in your medical career? And what do you think is important for trainees now to be thinking about in their early training? Well, I, 
you know, the skills that, that had to be developed at that time in neonatal medicine uh, were um, uh, to be inquisitive. In other words, uh, to learn how to look at a patient and how to do a thorough physical examination, uh, how to ask questions of the mother and the father about the pregnancy, since this was a whole new area. And we began to realize that what happened in pregnancy affected the baby at the time of birth or even the delivery process. Um, and that we used our time to try and seek answers that would allow us to make a diagnosis and then to provide care. Um, and so that uh, learning to look, learning to put your hands on, learning to think, uh, and then use the evidence that you had at that time, which was pretty minimal, to develop a plan of care uh, were really very important. And I don't think it's really changed today. And then you have to work on actually creating the evidence then to go from there. <laughs> well, we, we began to do that. Uh, and that's true. Uh, as a fellow in Colorado, uh, I sought out questions related to uh, fetal development. And I learned fetal physiology, uh, and I think that really uh, set the stage for uh, looking for answers to questions that related to diagnosis and care, and that was really very important. Well, to get into the specifics of that, um, so the field of neonatology has evolved, obviously, since we're talking quite a bit since you first started, with many new therapies and modalities to improve the survival of these premature infants. For example, in 1960, the estimated survival rate for a one kilo birth weight infant was dismal, um, but now, here in 2021, has improved to about 95%. In your view, what have been the biggest advances in the care of premature infants during your career? Well, you know, we, we, I've been involved with introduction of incredible changes in care over the last 50 years. Uh, I've witnessed the introduction of actual infant ventilators instead of modified adult ventilators. Uh, the introduction of positive airway pressure, or CPAP, uh, the use of surfactant therapy, uh, the implementation of antenatal steroids. Uh, and even though we've had all of those things occur, and each of them are unique unto themselves, I think it really was the understanding of the unique physiology, the pathophysiology associated with development and our changes in basic care that really led to the improvement in outcomes. Uh, we looked at our data at Parkland a few years ago with Jeff Kaiser, who's now the director of neonatal medicine at Hershey. Uh, and what we found was, was that actually our biggest fall in neonatal mortality occurred before the introduction of CPAP, before the introduction of surfactant therapy. Uh, and we think that related to understanding better the fluid needs and how to warm babies and how to uh, settle babies in who were born prematurely, even though they were now uh, babies less than 30 weeks gestation. So I think understanding the basic physiology of development 
uh, has really, really changed our ability to understand how to provide care for disease processes. Do you think that happened mostly on an observational level or more from animal studies? I think it was a combination. I think a lot of it came from animal studies. Uh, people like uh, Giacomo Mescia and Fred Battaglia in Colorado, as well as Abe Rudolph uh, in San Francisco, uh, taught us about the cardiovascular changes that occurred uh, in pregnancy in the fetus. Uh, and how that transitioned into the newborn. Uh, Dr. Mescia and Dr. Battaglia taught us a lot about nutrition and growth uh, prior to birth, uh, and that's been carried over uh, into uh, our understanding of the needs of the newborn infant uh, with regard to fluid and calories uh, and electrolytes. And so I think as we understood the basic physiology through animal studies, we transmitted that into understanding what went on in the human, uh, and that allowed us then to better understand human physiology and pathophysiology. Uh, but the animal studies uh, that were done in those days in uh, newborn sheep and uh, fetal sheep are just, uh, you, their value is uh, unquestionable in my mind. Mm-hmm. What has it been like for you to go from, you know, going to work in the the Yale Neonatal Intensive Care Unit where gestational age wasn't really a concept in terms of the care of these babies yet to going, now we have these advanced level four NICUs with all these therapies and everything. How has that transitioned? I mean, how have you felt about that whole process living through it? I was very fortunate in that uh, when I left New York to go to Colorado to do my training in research in perinatal medicine, uh, there was a woman there by the name of Lou Lubchenco. Uh, and Dr. Lubchenco, in conjunction with Dr. Battaglia and others, introduced, introduced this whole concept of gestational age and how growth was dependent upon uh, the weight and the gestational age, and we now knew what prematurity was. It was less than 32 weeks. Uh, we are less than 35 weeks gestation, and it had nothing to do with weight. It had more to do with the duration of pregnancy. Uh, and when we looked at that, we then realized that that also related to neonatal outcome and mortality. And so the Lucheco charts really changed at least my concept, how I approached the newborn infant in terms of, of what the risks were. When I came to Dallas, uh, there were no survivors less than a kilo uh, at Parkland Hospital that I could find going back to 1968, and I arrived there in 1973. And the introduction of of the Lutchenko charts and the risk for mortality after birth changed the thinking of the obstetrician, the pediatrician, the neonatologist. And within two to three years, our neonatal mortality had dropped 70% um, just because we now knew how to take care of babies and we knew what the risks were and we had people in the delivery rooms uh, to take care of the babies immediately at the time of birth rather than waiting until they got sick. Looking forward, what are some hurdles you think neonatology still faces as a field? Well, I, I think 
where we're headed now is, is defining the what is viability. Uh, and that's been a question all along. It started off when you suddenly had survivors who were less than 1,000 grams or less than 30 weeks, and then you had survivors who were less than 25 weeks gestation. Um, and that's going to have to be an important aspect of how we look at our use of resources and what we can really do as physicians. Uh, and that relates to what I think is really the, the big area of change that's going to occur, and that is long-term development. Uh, understanding where these infants that are born prematurely that have issues in the neonatal intensive care unit, where they're going to be at five years of age and at 13 years of age and at 21 years of age, and what we can do to improve those outcomes uh, in studies that we've done uh, at Parkland Hospital at UT Southwestern Medical Center, we found that preterm babies are at increased risk by six to eight months of age for elevated blood pressure and obesity. Uh, we're now seeing those kids at 10 to 13 years of age, and the risk for overweight and obesity and elevated blood pressures is, accounts for 50% of the patients that we followed. And so the long-term development and improving the outcome long-term is really what's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. What kind of things do you think will help us get there other than long-term um, prospective observational studies? Well, I, I think we're going to have to figure out one, how to feed babies in the NICU correctly. Uh, we're going to have to address the question of how do we feed them after they leave the NICU. Uh, I think that's a the same question we have for even term babies, and that is to optimize growth in such a way that we don't put the babies at risk uh, at school age for uh, the initiation of adult onset diseases. Uh, this whole new area is, is really exciting, uh, but it extends into general pediatrics, and so the neonatologist is going to hand off more and more babies to the general pediatrician uh, and they're both going to have to be responsible for deciding how to feed and how to follow and how to implement uh, uh, early learning in these kids in order to optimize outcome. And as far as when you said how to feed them properly in the NICU, um, are you referring to like TPN composition, breast milk versus formula, that kind of thing? <laughs> well, it's interesting with TPN, uh, I can remember when it was first introduced, I, I did one of the first cases of uh, TPN therapy in New York City as, as a resident, uh, and I used it without any research having been done at all. It was just a series of case reports out of Philadelphia. Um, and when we had a big meeting uh, in Atlantic City with pediatricians, the question was, was how much research had been done on TPN and what was the best way to administer it. And one of the uh, leaders in neonatal medicine pointed out that we hadn't done any research at all. We were doing this anecdotally. Uh, that still exists to some extent. Um, and so we're still learning how to optimize uh, total uh, uh, intravenous nutrition and then to make that transition to oral feedings 
uh, and how to use breast milk and how to use formulas and additives appropriately. Um, Dr. Brion in our unit has pointed out that micronutrient deficiencies in many babies has led to poor growth uh, and growth disorders and that by understanding those deficiencies, we can actually reverse the adverse effects of, of their absence. So we're still learning about how to feed. Well, that's exciting. And I mean, it sounds like there's a lot more uh, room. Um, and like you said, Dr. Brion is helping um, get some more knowledge in that area. Um, from a personal standpoint, what do you consider your greatest professional accomplishment or your greatest contribution to the field? <laughs> that's, that's an ego question. You realize that, don't you? Uh, it's... it's uh, when you look back uh, and think about what you did um, and where the impact has been, uh, it, it takes a moment of reflection. Um, I've published a lot of papers but uh, on a lot of research that I've done, uh, but I don't consider that to be my greatest professional accomplishment. Uh, when I look back and I think of the things that I've been involved with, what I really believe has been my greatest accomplishment is having had the unique opportunity uh, to teach and mentor students. Uh, and that began in grammar school when I volunteered in the Dallas Independent School District at the School for Advanced Students. Uh, and can remember a red-headed boy at the back of the room asking me a question after I'd given them an overview of animal research and in, in understanding uh, medicine. Uh, and I was excited because here was a, uh, a third grader asking questions uh, about uh, what we were doing. Uh, that third grader, by the way, went on to graduate from MIT and is a professor of uh, environmental sciences down at, uh, in Houston. Um, but it extended all the way to graduate education, uh, not just in medicine, but also in the basic sciences. So as I look back, I think the fun part, as well as my greatest accomplishment, is having had the opportunity and being given the opportunity to work with students at every level uh, throughout education. And that's an impressive legacy you leave as well. Um, as you said, you know, your mentees and trainees are now leaders in the field themselves. So that's a good, satisfying legacy to leave. Thank you. And then again, looking forward, um, we were talking about hurdles that neonatology faces and kind of advances in the field in recent years. What things do you think are coming through the pipeline that you're most excited about in terms of um, you know, potentially even decrease threshold of viability, improved outcomes for um, the current premature babies that are born? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I think that uh, many of the things you just mentioned are really going to be important. But as I look back and I think about the comments and the questions that you've made, uh, for example, uh, my comment about the physiology uh, and understanding growth and development. 
Uh, I think what we're going to see in the next few years is incredibly fine-tuning of our understanding uh, and our application of new knowledge so that we improve what we're doing now uh, to the next level. Uh, Molecular biology is going to help us understand the risk for certain areas of, uh, of growth and development uh, as we begin to uh, explore uh, the role of cellular growth. Uh, I think the fine-tuning of what we know now uh, using randomized controlled trials and using long-term outcomes, uh, quality improvement studies, they're, they're all going to make it easier for us to use evidence-based medicine as our basis for practicing neonatal medicine. Dr. Rosenfeld, as I mentioned in your introduction, you do remain active in the division, including in research activities, journal club, mentorship. Given the current landscape, especially during the past year that we've had with COVID, um, current landscape of high rates of burnout in physicians, what advice do you have for physicians today to stay engaged and motivated and avoid burnout in practice? Well, b- well burnout is an issue that occurs in all walks of life, whether it be academic or clinical medicine or being a lawyer or financial advisor. Um, and I think that the, the isolation that we've had in the last year uh, or so has, um, has affected people differently, uh, depending on how you look at life and how you handle life. Uh, to me, burnout means that uh, you didn't take time uh, to be with your family and to have your own time in um, uh, freedom. Uh, you have to move away from work intermittently in order to maintain um, uh, vision, I think. Um, and so that uh, my, my recommendation for people, no matter what field they're in, um, is that you have to learn to find time for your family and yourself. Um, you, learn, you have to learn how to enjoy the time away from work. Um, in my respect, uh, I did it by maintaining the vegetable garden. It was downtime. Uh, and the other way I did it was I vacationed with my family so that I was able to come back and recharge my battery. Uh, and take up what I was doing uh, very intensively. Uh, so I think that uh, people have to do what they enjoy doing, but at the same time they have to make sure that that's not all they do. There has to be outside interests, uh, and those interests have to allow you time to think, time to relax, and time to enjoy the things around you, and importantly that's your family and your children. And to close the episode, is there any, um, are there any words of advice or anything else that you want our listeners to, to hear? Well, I, I think for those of us in medicine, what you want to be able to do at the end of the career is look back and say, boy, I really did have fun. Uh, and that I did provide the community and the people that I've worked with 
something uh, that they might not have had if I had not done what I did. Uh, sounds a little uh, perplexing, but but I think that you want to be able to say at the end of your career that it was a fun time and that you would do it again. Um, uh, that's the way I look at um, uh, medicine right now. Uh, I would change nothing that I've done. That is wonderful. I hope we can all have the same. Dr. Rosenfeld, thank you again so much for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome, and thanks for the invitation. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.